We'll be reading from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not 
both fall into a pit. And a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a, ho- and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight from your spirit as we look into your word this morning? Would you help me as I seek to rightly proclaim what, what it says, apply it to our lives. And Spirit, would you work in our own hearts to receive that, to hear, to truly hear, and do what it says. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So our, our passage starts with Jesus coming down from an all-night prayer session on the mountain. You know, from time to time, he's getting off by himself in desolate places to pray in between all of this activity of his ministry. And many of his disciples are there. And there's a multitude, it says, a a crowd of others who have come from far off places, you know, uh, to hear what he has to say, to be healed by him. And it says that he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, right? His disciples, from among whom he selected 12 to be apostles. Sometimes we talk about the 12, as, and we, say, we call them disciples, and it's true, but really the disciples are all of those who were following him, right? And there's 12 specifically that he calls uh, apostles. He calls them apostles. And we notice, as Luke names each of the 12 That the very last one, he makes a point to say, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor? One becomes a traitor. Think about that. Great crowds and multitudes. And amongst the great crowds and multitudes, there are Jesus' disciples. Those who have been following him around, listening to him, doing what he said, you know, And then amongst those disciples, 
he picks 12, just 12. And amongst those 12, there's one who would be a traitor. One who appears to be following Jesus, but is not truly of Christ. And Jesus looks up, it says, he lifts his eyes to to the disciples particularly, not to the crowds, not to just anyone, but to those who would say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe they wouldn't say Christ yet. I should be more specific. Maybe they don't understand exactly who he is as Christ, but he, they would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I follow Jesus. I abide by Jesus' teaching. And he looks up to them and he says, blessed are you who? And I'm imagining, this is my imagination running a little wild here, so just go with it for a second. I'm imagining as he opens with that line, it's like the State of the Union. Have you ever watched the State of the Union dressed? President says like one line and all the people stand up and they're like, yeah, you know, and then he's got to like stop and wait for the, the cheering to like die down so he can continue. Imagine that's what it's like for Jesus. Blessed are you who, and everyone's like, woohoo, did you hear? He said we're blessed. Yeah, we love Jesus. He pauses. And blessed are you. Ah, yeah, we're blessed again. Woo-woo-woo, you know. I want you to understand, though, as we, as we look at this, I want you to understand what it means when he says blessed. Blessing, his audience would have taken to understand something like being happy, something like happiness, but not in the sappy, superficial way that we use the word today, you know. In the, in the Old Testament, this idea of being blessed is just joy at experiencing good fortune from the hand of God, knowing, it's this joy that comes from knowing God is, is blessing, God is giving something to me, God is taking care of me. It's this inner, inner happiness at, at good fortune. And so I'm guessing that this is an incredibly encouraging moment for the crowds, right, for the disciples. He's telling us we're blessed. But then Jesus gets done with his blessings and he says, but woe to you who? The woe, it's, it's this warning of impending judgment. Everyone would have known when he said woe. Everyone would have known exactly what he was saying. It's the opposite of blessed. Instead of having peace, knowing God is going to take care of you, there's a sense of dread knowing that God is going to take care of you, if you get what I mean. Jesus, it said, looked up, looked his eyes up to his disciples, to his disciples, to the people whose hands were raised saying, I follow Jesus. I abide by Jesus's teaching. I do what Jesus says. And he says, you are, some of you are blessed and some of you, whoa. He was not talking to those who denied him. He was talking to his disciples. church. We need to stop and think for a second. 
Where are you? I wonder if Judas was standing there listening to Jesus saying with everyone else, did you hear he said we're blessed? We can assume, if it was true then, that today in every church, as people gather to worship our Lord, that there are people who are blessed and there are people to whom Jesus is saying, woe. Woe to you. People who say they believe in Jesus, people who look like they've been doing Christian things, they are following Jesus around, they're all of this, all the things, all the things the crowds have been doing. See, all too often we are satisfied with people merely saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and maybe stopping doing a few really bad sins that we all know are really bad sins, right? And to the crowds of those people, Jesus says, blessed are you and woe to you. You see, it's not the job of of every Christian as we go out to make disciples. It's not the job of, of our job that God has given us to just merely have people say they're a Christian, merely get wet and stop doing a few really bad sins. That's not the job. The job is to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Parents, the reason that we are making such a big deal about family worship, the reason we're talking about that this tonight is too often and too, for too long in churches, we have thought, fathers, you, fathers have thought, your job is to get your kid to say, I love Jesus, get them wet, and hopefully they come out as good citizens. They don't do anything too bad. And I know that has often been, that is the common way of thinking in American evangelicalism, because I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and I saw it time and time again. If I could just get my kid to say they love Jesus, get them wet, and don't do anything too stupid. Just grow up to be a good citizen. We're not making good citizens of this world. We're making good citizens of God's kingdom. That's what we're trying to do. And that means we actually have to obey God's word when it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When it says to teach them to love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength, not just with a few words out of their mouth, not just one prayer that they prayed one time at the front of church, not just in the moment that they were baptized. It doesn't stop there. That's that's what God has called us to do. There's so much more that Christ has for us and for his people. So the bottom line thing that I want you to get from this sermon, I suppose if I was going to put it in one sentence, this is my best attempt. Jesus wants citizens of the kingdom who look like the father because they follow the son. That's the point. He wants citizens of the kingdom 
who look like the Father because they actually follow the Son. They do not just say, Lord, Lord, but they hear and they do it. So I have the unenviable job of basically preaching Jesus' sermon back to you this morning. The text is, is, is Jesus' sermon on the plain, and it's got three points. I hope you noticed. It has three points. And so I have three points. First, we're going to look at the blessings and woes, and we're going to see that there are two kinds of people. Jesus identifies two kinds of people. Second, is Jesus' teaching on merciful love. We're going to call that one distinguishing mark. If there's one distinguishing mark of citizens of the kingdom, of those who follow the Son, of those who are sons of the Father, it's merciful love. And then we're going to look at Jesus' three short parables. I'm going to call those three pulse checks. I'm calling them pulse checks because... I think the point of them is to check your heart. Is your heart where it ought to be? What is your heart set on? All right. Two kinds of people. From Genesis 3, if you you were with us when we were preaching through Genesis, you heard this over and over again. From Genesis 3, there have been two kinds of people. There are, I, I need you to understand, there are lots of different ways that the world categorizes people, but the Bible primarily the major two categories. There's only, there's only one dividing line, okay? Genesis 3, it calls it the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There are those who are Christ's followers, and there are those who are not. There are those who are blessed, and there are those to whom Jesus says, woe. That's it. And in, here, in these blessings and woes, what we're going to see is there are four blessings that Jesus talks about, and there are four woes, and the four blessings correspond or contrast to the four woes. And so first we have this blessing and woe of the poor and the rich. Now, poor would not have been understood uh, to be purely uh, in socioeconomical terms. They would not have taken it purely in socioeconomical terms, though they wouldn't have separated it from that completely either. These poor that Jesus is speaking of would, would have been thought of as the socioeconomic poor who looked to and trusted in God for their provision. And that's our first big identifier of those who are blessed. Those who are blessed are those who trust in God. And the comparison is to those who are rich, right? Woe to you who are rich. They have all the consolation that they're going to get. Oh, you have a bunch of stuff right now. You're, you're fine. You could take care of yourself. Well, g- good for you. You've got the blessing that you're going to get. And that's it. The rich man arrogantly and selfishly finds his security in his material possessions, in his ability, in, in his uh, uh, power to get or to take care of whatever, rather than turning to and depending on God. And this first blessing, I want you to see, It's in a tense that refers to a present state. It's not, yours will be the kingdom. It's, yours is the kingdom right now. These poor 
Jesus is saying, possess the kingdom right now. It's, it's theirs, even if they haven't fully experienced it. It's theirs. You have the deed to it, even if you haven't gone into every room in the house and jumped on every bed, right? Possessing the kingdom is the reason for all of the, the, the blessings. And that sets up really the next two blessings and woes that we see. We have the hungry and weeping, and we have the full and the laughing. And here the blessings and woes have a future fuller fulfillment. You shall. You're hungry and weeping right now, but you shall. You're full and laughing right now, but you shall. Those who turn to Christ in faith are heirs of the kingdom right now. And the promise of that kingdom is that hunger and weeping will be turned to satisfaction and laughing at some point. The apostles will have much hunger and weeping ahead of them. But what they've gained in Christ is far better. You see, while there is deep spiritual uh, uh, and tangible blessing here. And while there's no mechanical guarantees, I want you to understand that, that it will often result eventually in tangible blessings. It's not, this is not a division from completely tangible blessings, even right now here on earth, even if not in the places we expect them to be. I want you to understand this is not some sort of like coins in a vending machine kind of thing. It's seeds in soil, That's the analogy that the Bible gives. It's not, oh, I put the coins in the vending machine, God, now you're supposed to bless me, right? Because I'm one of the blessed. The analogy is seeds in soil. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes you sow seeds somewhere and it doesn't produce the crop you thought it would. Sometimes you sow seeds and it produces much more crop than you thought it would. God is in charge of all of that. He gets to decide. We get to do the sowing and the praying and the trusting that we will have provision come harvest time. Listen, there there are areas in my life I think back, and I I loved that psalm we read earlier, Psalm 45, where it talks about the miry bog, because I I think back to a time in my life where that's, that's how I felt. That's how I thought of my life. I thought, I am in a pit. I am in a miry bog, and I don't know how to get out of this. And I remember in that time in prayer, God come speaking to me and just saying, look, I can get you out of this pit, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me. You can't try to do it on your own and have me do this for you. And I thought to myself, I thought, this is never, these areas of my life that feel like a pit, they're never going to be anything. They are hunger and weeping right now, and they will never be anything but hunger and weeping. And God said, trust me. And it didn't. It took time. And it wasn't easy. But by God's grace, I can tell you, I turned to him. And after years, those are some of the areas of my life that now have the most satisfaction and joy. And there have never been a time in my life where God has commanded something, where I've trusted Him and done what He said, even when it didn't make sense to me, and it did not in time actually result in far better 
than what I wanted in the first place. The last comparison that Jesus gives us are those who hated, who are hated on account of the Son of Man. And this calls to mind two, two concepts, two Old Testament concepts. One we've already seen a couple of weeks ago when Jesus started his ministry in chapter 4. Do you remember Jesus' prelude to his, mes- his, uh, to his message and his ministry that the prophets of old were rejected by Israel? And so they went off to others to, to uh, do what, what God, to preach what God wanted them to say, because Israel had rejected what they were saying. Israel would, went after the false prophets instead. And Jesus was then quoting from Isaiah, 60, uh, Isaiah 62, and here Jesus, I think, in, in these blessings and woes, he's thinking of Isaiah 65, 13, and 14, because we find very similar language to what Jesus is saying here. In Isaiah 65, it says this, it says, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. What is happening in Isaiah 65? God is rejecting those who have broken his covenant. And he's making a people out of a whole different group of people who are willing to turn from him. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are willing to turn from him. He's making a people out of them. And he's saying, yes, you have rejected me. This is what you'll get. But those who turn to me, my servants shall eat. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. Paul, in Romans 10, takes these same verses and he uses them to tell us that God has rejected ethnic Israel and is making a people from all who turn to him. The point is turning to Christ. But how do we know that we possess this kingdom? How do we know that if we turn to Jesus and follow him, we'll possess this kingdom? Well, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, for himself here. It's used, uh, he, he likes to use this title throughout the Gospels for himself. It's actually only used three other times in the entire New Testament. Once by Stephen, when he's, be, when he's dying, he's being stoned, and he looks up to heaven, and he sees the clouds part, and he sees Jesus enthroned. And it's used twice by John in the book of Revelation, also of Jesus enthroned in heaven. It's a reference to Daniel 7 and this vision of an ascended Jesus coming to the Father and being given the kingdom, being given all authority, being given all dominion, all glory over everything. And so here's the point. Those who turn to Jesus are blessed as citizens of the kingdom because Jesus is the king of that kingdom. That's how you know he can do it because he's in charge of it all. He says, you will possess the kingdom. Why? Because I'm the king. And I, because you are in me through faith, make you co-heirs of that kingdom. It's mine to give and I give it to you. So there's two kinds of people. Those who become co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom. Those who turn to God, those who trust in him and those who depend on themselves and rebel against him. And listen, right now, here's the blowback. Here's the blowback is that those who are rebelling against the Son of Man, they will seek to harm those who are submitting to his authority, just like they did to the prophets of old. 
And so Christians, you need to understand. You need to understand that that will happen. And yet, this should be encouraging words. Stick with Jesus. Avoid woe. Because the promise from Christ is that your reward will be great in heaven. Is that your reward from Him is great. It's worth it. It's worth it. But being a citizen of the kingdom creates on us a distinguishing mark. It's a mark, uh, it marks us because we've been given it, and it marks it us because we then give it ourselves. And that distinguishing mark is merciful love. And I want you to understand that this mark is first a gospel reality. Verse 27 opens with these words, but I say to you who hear. You see, everyone is hearing. All the disciples are there. All the crowds are there. They all hear the words audibly that Jesus is saying, but not everyone actually hears. Some, like those from of old who rejected the prophets, who heard the prophets of God and rejected it and refused to listen, refused to believe God's word from them, refused to obey it, they did not truly hear. But some do truly hear. And, and, and this is important, you know, as we, as we walk through Luke, I want you to kind of see this big, this big picture thing that's ha- that Luke is doing. Uh, I've told you that this is Jesus's uh, early ministry in Galilee, and at some point in, in chapter 9, towards the end of chapter 9, Jesus is, is going to say that Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. And I told you that Luke organizes his, his gospel geographically, right? And so at some point, he's going to turn his face to Jerusalem. He's going to begin to march to Jerusalem. And all these places, what is Jesus saying? You must follow me. You must follow me. You must follow me. It's all geographic, okay? From here, from this point to when Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, Luke's major point is this. Those who hear what Jesus is saying, those who have faith, they will do what Jesus is doing. I think that's an important setup before Jesus turns his face to the cross, right? And so there's this, this first uh, gospel reality, this merciful love is a gospel reality. It's, a, it's something that comes to us by faith. It's a gift of God. We have been the recipients of God's merciful love. He empowers His people to give merciful love. And yet, it's also a godly duty. Just because it can only come by way of God's gift does not mean that we don't have responsibilities in this, right? The same illustration works with the farmer. We still have to, you still have to go, the farmer still has to go out and till the soil, right? He still has to work the soil, even if he understands that all of his work depends ultimately on God to bring the thing. So those who, by faith, hear the word and respond to the word, they begin to exemplify this merciful love. What what is this merciful love? Let's, Let's see how Jesus defines it here. I want you to notice in this section that 
There are three definitions in verses 27 and 28. There are three illustrations in verses 29 and 30. And then what I'm calling three differentiations in verses 32 and 34. And they're all in parallel with one another again. Okay? So Jesus is taking the same themes and he's just repeating them. And he's building on them. And then he builds on them again. So the first thing is love your enemies. Love your enemies, verse 27. And he illustrates it this way. To the one who strikes, offer the other. In Lamentations 3.30, it says it parallels giving your cheek to, be, to, to the one who strikes with being filled with insults. The idea here, the idea here is, is of loving the person who does not show you love, right? The point is that your heart's towards that person. This isn't saying that there's never a situation where physical force may be the most loving thing you can do, right? Sometimes the most loving thing you can do may be actually to use physical force, not simply, you know, physically turn your other cheek. But it's also, it's also saying that we cannot come to church and be like, oh, oh, hey, Sally, it's, it's good to see you, and then be thinking in our head, yeah, it'd be good to see you fall on your face, right? See, we get this spun around when we begin to talk about the externals of the thing. We think to ourselves, oh, we're, I'm, I'm fine because I was cordial to that person. I was nice outside to that person. If I could just, you know, that's what we're supposed to be, right? As Christians, nice. With sarcasm, in case you didn't catch that. But if our hearts are wicked, then what good is it? If I'm nice to this person, but my heart wishes ill towards them, that's not not the love of Christ. At the same time, if Sally's coming into the church to hurt people, maybe tripping her and having her fall on her face might be the most loving thing to do. Do you get what I mean? We've got to look deeper at the heart thing that's going on here. Be, do good to those who hate you is the second thing he says. It's illustrated by from the one who takes, do not withhold. The picture here is of a person being robbed of their outer cloak. And the point that Jesus is making is you don't seek revenge. You don't have hearts that seek revenge. He's not, again, if we push this too, you know, literal here in what he's saying, we might think, well, I guess if someone you know, steals my cloak, then I've got to strip down and, you know, take my tunic off as well and walk around, you know, with nothing on because it said to do that. But that's not the point that Jesus is making. Nor is it to applaud the person who allows themselves to be abused by others while dreaming of how they want to put that guy in the hospital, Right? Jesus, what good is it? What good is it if you allow someone to to do you harm and then in your head all you're thinking about is, man, I'd like to pummel that guy. That's no merciful love. That's not of Christ. Then the the last part, return 
to people better than what's owed them. It's defined in two ways, blessing for curse, prayer for abuse. And it's illustrated by this, to, to the one who begs, give, and from the one who takes, do not demand back. And, and here's the point of what Jesus is trying to say. We should be known for our generosity and our willingness to give. We should be known for our generosity and our willingness to give. We, we, what I'm wanting you to get in each of these is we can become rigid and miss the heart of what Christ is trying to say. I, we could become rigid in this, and every time that someone ever comes up to you and asks for money, you hand, you know, I'm just, I, well, Jesus said this, so I've got a, a stack of 20s in my pocket I always keep, and if anyone ever asks me anything, I just hand them a 20, and then I go on my way. But that, you can do that all day and never actually love anyone. And sometimes the most loving thing to do is not that. This kind of true giving, it means two things, guys. First, we don't have prejudice around, we're not impartial about our giving as to whether the person would be able to return the favor or pay us back in some way. We don't only give to the person who we think can return something back to us, either money or, or some other thing. That should not be a defining factor. The second is this, we don't give with strings attached. We don't give with strings attached. That's not what Christians do. Friends, we do this all the time. We pay a compliment, and we sit and we wait for someone to compliment us back, and then we're mad when they don't. Woe to you. Why did you give them the compliment in the first place? That's not, if that's why you gave them that compliment, that's not giving. That's selfish. You were giving to yourself then. You weren't giving to that person. You were just giving to yourself through them. That's all you were doing. That's not giving. You, and when they pay you that compliment back, if that's your heart, and when they pay you that compliment back, you have got all you're going to get. You will have no reward in heaven for that. You've got all the consolation you'll have. How dare we hold it over someone's head later on, obligate them to do something? That's not, that's not giving. All of these really boil down to this one basic principle. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Jesus says in verse 31. And it's not a passive command. Christians must allow, it's not like we're saying Christians must allow peop, evil people to do whatever they want. That's not loving, ultimately. This is an active command. Because of the great love God has given me, I willingly give love to someone else that I recognize is not showing me love or may not show me love. Not because I want to try to trick them into loving me. Not because I want to try to you know, manipulate them or get something back from them, but I'm willing to do this because Christ has already shown me love. 
And guys, these are messy. These become messy in complex situations. I get it. Years ago, we had a, 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 someone in our family, our family's life, I'll say, who began to use abusive and vulgar language towards me, towards my wife, towards my kids. It was not a good situation. And I had to figure out what to do. And frankly, I, I mean, you, if you've been in a situation like this or something similar, it's like, I, how do you handle this? Here I am, the pastor. I'm like, you know, pastor guy. And, and I'm like, ah, uh, what do you do? Without returning any vulgarities, without making, it, you know, making any cutting personal remarks, I clearly communicated that, that, that he would no longer be able to interact with my wife and kids. I'm sorry, you can no longer interact with my wife and kids. This is, this is, this is not appropriate, and I'm drawing a line here. But I will interact with you. I will communicate with you. You can talk with me. I don't know if I went about all of that perfectly. I probably didn't, but my heart in it was to show love to him, even though I knew that he would at points insult me, even though I knew that it would mean that I'd have to put up with things that were less pleasant than I would like, right? Even though I knew that there would be a time where, where he would yell or, or insult or cuss me out. And I did that not because I felt I owed him something, or to try to manipulate him into something, or to try to keep hold of something that I was getting from him. I did it because I had all I needed already in Christ. I was willing to put myself in that position out of love for him because of the love that Christ had given me. Listen, this is simple, but it's not easy. Jesus illustrates it very vividly in verses 32 and 34. If you only love like sinners love, then what, what does that make you? What does that mean for you? What reward will you have? What benefit, he says, is that to you? And, and, and I think he's talking directly about this reward that we have in God, this reward that we have from heaven. You don't Get a reward for heaven from doing what people who are not citizens of the kingdom do. Everyone does that. But how can we possibly love like this? Well, in a sinful world, we must add to our love mercy. Mercy is necessary. We need mercy. But where do we get that from? Uh, sometimes if you're like me, you're in a situation and you're just like, my mercy, whatever the mercy jar is that's in my heart, it is on empty right now. I, I don't got any of that, right? Sometimes when my kids are just going crazy all day and, you know, they do that one last thing and I'm just looking at my heart and I'm going, the mercy jar is on E right now, you know? Our godly duties must be built on gospel realities. Our godly duties must be built on gospel truth. It must be built on, not on our ability to fulfill that duty, but on what Christ has done for us. Verse 35, it recaps, it says, Love, do good, lend freely, and your reward will be great. 
There's no way to love like this unless you understand that you have been given God's kingdom. There's no way to continue to give of yourself in this way unless you understand that God has given you everything. Or else at some point you're going to go, I don't got anything else to give. What will I have left? No one who is grasping for their own kingdom will do this consistently. Only those who trust in Christ's word and work to deliver on what is promised to us. So our model for mercy is the justice of the Father. You will be sons of the Most High. You will be like God, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God's mercy is His, His goodness towards us in our miserable and pitiable condition as we bear the weight of the consequences of our sin. We need our, His help, right? Our command to show merciful love, then, is both an instruction of what we should do, it's the gospel duty, but it's also a reminder of what God has done for us. And I think the reason that our resource in showing this kind of merciful love runs so short is because you don't actually think that you're a pitiable sinner. You don't actually think you're all that bad. You don't actually think that God showed you all that much mercy. And so you don't actually understand just how massive God's resource is to give merciful love to us. Friends, this is why this is why we can't just give people we can't just say like look hey Jesus loves you. There's no crossroad for that. That's like, that's like telling someone, hey, yeah, it's, where you need to go is on Kansas Avenue. Well, where on Kansas Avenue? There's a Kansas Avenue in every single town. It's like the longest road, at least in Kansas. No, it's, it's on First and Kansas. That's where it is. Well, you know what First Street is? You're sinful. You're a sinner. And this is the point in which God's merciful love intersects with your sin and changes everything. That's where people need to know to go. That's where we have to go every day. Recognizing, man, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am that sinful. But not staying right there. Not staying just on First Street, but going, yeah, but Christ, but God had such merciful love for me. When that person is in front of us and we go, gosh, I don't know how to love this person right now, you know what we need to think about? Whatever they're doing, I've done worse. Whatever the speck is in their eye, I, I've had the logs. We'll run out of resources really fast. I'm riffing, and this sermon's going to get longer. Sorry. Um, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Listen, this is not a refusal to make appropriate ethical evaluations. I want you to get this, church, because people, people get this mixed up. This is not, this is not a, 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 like, oh, you never, have to, you never say something is wrong that someone does. 
You never say that this is, is a thing is wrong. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, how can we show mercy if we don't make judgments like this? How can you show mercy to someone? How can, by definition, if mercy is something, that, the love that you show to someone who is a sinner, right, who has the consequences of sin on, on them, how can you do that if you are not actually making a judgment there about the fact that they actually are a sinner? You see what I'm saying? Mercy is, by definition, tied to our understanding of sin and wrongdoing. If we take away the sin and wrongdoing, then all that is left is goodness, the goodness we show someone because they're owed it, because they're a good person too. It's not mercy. So when God's goodness and His holiness get married in a sinful world, they have twin children called mercy and justice, okay? There's injustice over there, and at the opposite of injustice over here are mercy and justice holding hands. Mercy is never injustice. It's God's just non-justice. It's his willing and loving decision to refrain from bringing justice where he could. It's his willing and loving decision to go, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you deserve those consequences. And yet, I am having mercy on you. I'll take away those consequences. I'll put them on myself instead. I think about my kids sometimes. They get in trouble, grounded from something, you know, and they, and they go, oh, uh, you know, they're grounded from TV, I don't know, whatever. And they're kind of over here, you know, oh, man, I'm, I can't. Oh, we were going to do this, you know, but I can't. And sometimes as a father, you, you, you go, okay, no, I'm going to have mercy on you. Yes, that is the punishment, and yes, that punishment was deserved, and yes, you did do something wrong, and yet, because I love you, I will actually take some of that right and just punishment off of your shoulders. Think about when my kids got in trouble recently, and, and they were grounded from the TV, and all the other kids went downstairs to watch the TV, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'm not going to go down there with those kids. I'm going to say to this kid, hey, what can we do instead of watch TV? I want to do something with you tonight. Let's play a game. And that's merciful love. In a sinful world, any conversation about God's goodness that is divorced from His holy standard, it will orphan justice and mercy every single time. Any conversation that is divorced from God's, any conversation about God's goodness that is divorced from His holy standard will orphan justice and and mercy. Christ's followers understand him to be their king. He calls us to holiness. We understand his love through his salvation. Thus, we are called to mercy, that sweet place where goodness and holiness meet. See, Jesus has in view here, what he has in view is, is, is judgmentalism. Viewing people as beyond the reach of God's love and mercy saying, oh, God would never reach out with his goodness and his love to you because you did. We cannot do that. 
There is no place for that. Refusing to offer forgiveness, or worse yet, refusing to communicate the great forgiveness of God offered to them in Christ Jesus, that there's no place for. My heart wants to tell someone how they're wrong so that they know that I'm right, rather than seeing them made right by Christ. That is not merciful love. So the sense of these phrases in verse 37, they, they may be better communicated like this. How has God judged you? With mercy, so do, it, do the same. How has God condemned you? Well, the world was already condemned, and He came to save it, so do the same. How has God forgiven you? Well, go and forgive, do the same. How has God given you anything? Or has God given you anything? He's given you everything. So how can you not give from that? Bounty, bounty, bounty. You, you say, well, what bounty? Has, has God really given that, that much bounty to me? His mercy for you is described in verse 38. Do you see what it says? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Josie recently, she's been learning to make pancakes. She's been her thing. Whenever we make pancakes, she wants to be the one that makes them. And, and, and so recently she was making the pancakes and Amanda was kind of watching her and, and she was scooping up the, the, pan, the bisquick, right? And she was packing it down in there and, you know, squ- squishing it down. And, and man said, oh, oh you, don't, you, don't, you don't squish it down in there. You just kind of get it, you get it full, but you don't, you know, you don't press it down into the cup. That's how you measure bisquick. And, you know, and so there's a conversation, oh, I didn't know that and whatever. Oh, sorry, we didn't. But listen, this is how Christ, this is the mercy that you have in God. A good size measuring cup. And he presses it down in there. He stuffs in as much as he can. He gets all the holes, all the voids out. And then he piles it on top, right? Like, like fries at five guys, you know, they just pile a, a big pile of it on top. And then he puts it all up in your lap, right? It's flowing over, it's covering you. That's the picture that Christ is painting of the mercy that God gives to those who are citizens of His kingdom. If you're in Christ, listen, whether you realize it or not, you have plenty to spare. You have plenty to spare. So, three pulse checks. How do we know? This seems like a lot. How can we get, how can we do this? Where, where are we at with this? We, we aren't there yet. Jesus gives us these three parables that I think when applied will shape us into Christ. First one is this, what are your eyes set on? First pulse check question, what are your eyes set on? This has got a few moving parts. First, there's the reality that the blind will lead the blind into a pit, Right? Second, the student becomes like whoever the teacher is. That's the goal of being a student. Third, the speck and the log illustrate that if I'm instructing you about your speck, and I've got the same issue, uh, but it's a log, I'm not going to be very much help to you. I'll be the blind leading the blind, will I not? And so Jesus' instruction is this, be careful then who you follow, because if you are blind, if they are blind, You'll fall into a pit. If you follow them, you'll become like them. If they have a log in their eye, how will they help you? 
who should our eyes be set on ultimately? Christ. Jesus. The one who makes the blind to see. The one who is the exact imprint of God to whom we are to be sons. He is the only good mirror for our self-evaluation, right? If you try to evaluate yourself without reflecting on Christ first, you will either consider yourself way more highly than you ought, missing all of your own logs, or you'll fall deeper and deeper into self-loathing, into the deep vacuum of your own depravity, right? We've got to reflect on Christ Second question, pulse check question, what is your heart treasure? So what, do you, what are your eyes set on? And then what is your heart treasure? What is your heart set on? And this parable is this, good trees don't bear bad fruit and vice versa. You can look at a fruit tree and you can see what kind of tree it is right away every time because the DNA of that tree by nature can't help but produce the fruit it's supposed to produce. principle is this, whatever your heart treasures, whatever you worship, that's what you'll become like. That's what will come out in the fruit of your life. What is spiritually true of you will inevitably come out tangibly. If you treasure good things, then you'll produce good things. If you treasure bad things, then you'll produce bad things. Maybe not exclusively, but particularly in Initially, it's seen in what you say. Oftentimes, the first place that's seen is the words that come out of your mouth. It's the first checkpoint, right? Where I first go wrong with my kids is almost always the words that come out of my mouth. With my wife, the words that come out of my mouth. And so the practice is, is this, consider what your heart treasures. Listen, you can try to rearrange fruit on tree branches. And you can fool, maybe you can fool someone for a while. You go out there, you, you take the oranges off this tree, and you, you go over to the apple tree, and you sit all the oranges up in the apple tree like ornaments. Oh, look, I got, a, I got an orange tree. But man, that's going to get real tiring. You can only keep that up for so long before someone looks close and goes, that ain't no orange tree, that's an apple tree. God has to change the kind of tree you are. The fruit issue is really a root issue. If your heart is not rooted in Christ, you will not produce the fruit of Christ. I think that's where our last question goes. What is your foundation? Final parable, Jesus brings it home. Don't call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I tell you. You are not submitted to me. You don't actually trust me. You're not actually turned to me. You don't actually believe the words that I'm saying. Not truly. You don't actually, you've not actually entrusted yourself into them. Everyone who hears Jesus 
that truly hears Jesus, like we said back in verse 27, they will do Jesus' words. They dig deep into their life. They, they put their foundation on the rock that is Christ, and it says it withstands floods. Have you ever had any floods in your life? The waters have risen and pounded against the house of your life. I've had some floods. You build your house on Christ. It withstands the floods. But listen, look what he says. Everyone who doesn't really hear, truly, they don't do that. They're like a different kind of person. They also build a house. I mean, they're building a house. And on the surface, it may look very much like the house is built on the rock. But look what it says. Because they haven't built it on that foundation, when a stream comes, and yes, in the Greek, it really has that emphasis. It is a flood, a torrential flood, and a little trickle of a stream. A little, little stream hits that house. Boom, falls like a deck of cards. The house is ruined. In fact, the emphasis here, the way that the sentence is, is that the ruin of that house was great. It's like the Greek is saying, and the ruin of the house is like, kaboom. Kablooey. It's done. Not a, not a stone set on another stone. It is decimated. What is the foundation? What is the foundation of your life? What is it set on? Is it set on the promises of Christ or is it set on what you think you can do? Have you turned to God or is it set on what you can do and what you have? kind of doing that Jesus' true followers do, those who are blessed, those who have the kingdom. It's, it's a doing that is built on the deep belief that Jesus is Lord, He is King. You can do the things and you can look like Judas for a while. All the other 11 thought Judas was just fine. For three years, his house looked fine. But it wasn't built on the rock. push comes to shove. It's hard to have merciful love. It's impossible for all those who have not been given God's kingdom. At some point, Judas is bothered by what's going on, and he goes to the Pharisees and he says, how much will you give me? Listen, without so great a reward, we are quick to grasp the rewards of the world. But even for us who are God's children, we're still in the process of learning how to rule with Christ in that kingdom. We're in training. And we learn by following. We follow the one that the Father sent to win the victory, to take the kingdom, the one who the Father has enthroned over the kingdom until every bit of rebellion is put under his feet. So it's not our labor that earns us this kingdom. It's our faith in Christ and His work on the cross because He was exalted. He exalts us as well. And now, by the power of His Spirit at work within us, we strive to bring about that kingdom, first in our own hearts and then from our own hands and our own mouths as we 
set our eyes on Christ, looking to Him, as we set our hearts on Christ, treasuring Him, as we set our lives on Christ, building on His Word. Let's pray.